Hello, and welcome back to Responding To, the podcast that aims to expand information about gender and sexuality. I'm Lane, a transgender queer person with a background in women and gender studies and a background in performance studies. Um, Yet again, we find ourselves with an irregular episode. I'm probably just going to stop giving that disclaimer now. Um, You can just assume that all episodes are irregular going forward. (laughs) Uh, In that same vein, because so many episodes have been feeling, quote, irregular, I'm sort of doing some thinking about reframing the purpose or structuring of the podcast. Um, I don't have anything concrete to offer yet, but that may be coming soon. Anyway, today I have the distinct pleasure of coming to you with a full episode review of an incredible work of art. Today I'll be gushing about the book Undrowned Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals by Alexis Pauline Gums. I am so full of wonder and awe and gratitude that this book has come into my life and come into the world that I can't quite figure out what to say first because all of my thoughts are just vying to jump out of my mouth. Um, So I'll comfort myself by reminding myself that I will get to everything I can get to and there will unfortunately be some things I cannot get to simply because the world is imperfect and the format of a podcast episode has certain limitations and that's just what it is. Um, But enough about that. Let's dive in because there are more logistics to get to and I'm already frustrated at having to contain my desire to continue to revel in the writing for even one more moment. (laughs) So aside from the episode being irregular, uh, creating a podcast length A podcast episode length review of a book has been an interesting challenge. Um, Honestly, I would have just loved to read the whole book aloud as the episode, but that's not actually a review and uh, it would be kind of unwieldy and there might be copyright infringement issues, so um, I won't be doing that. Uh, (laughs) What I've decided to do instead is break my review up into sections and then just kind of focus on a few quotes that I've organized into the different sections. Um, If you're familiar with the show, you know that I usually try my best to indicate what's a quote and what's not a quote, and to cite the quotes, etc. I'm still going to do my best to indicate when I am reading a quote, at least for the first time I do some repetition of quotes, but for the first time I'll try to make it well known that it's a quote. Um, But since a lot more of this episode is quoted material, I'm going to switch up my regular formatting a little bit so I'm not saying quote, end quote, every five seconds. Um, In that vein, if you hear something beautiful or wondrous come out of my mouth in this episode and you aren't sure if it's a quote, um, (laughs) it's probably safe to assume it is. Um, And if you really like clarity, uh, look to the transcript. I'll be doing a clearer job of citing the quotes with page numbers in the transcript. Okay, so let's start with an overview of the book. Um, It's a book-length meditation, but it's also sort of like made up of individual meditations or perhaps sub-meditations. Gums calls them thematic movements. Um, She says calling them chapters would be, quote, too linear, which I love. Uh, If you can't tell from the title, the meditations are based on marine mammals with a few sharks thrown in for good measure and a whole bunch of like oceanic imagery, of course, or as Gums writes much more eloquently, this guide to undrowning listens to marine mammals specifically as a form of life that has much to teach us about the vulnerability, collaboration, and adaptation we need in order to be with change at this time. 
The book moves between offering science, history, poetry, quotes, and scholarship from other folks, dreaming, joking, and fierce loving. Um, any overview of this book feels like it would be incomplete to me without also naming it as a love letter to breath and breathing. Uh, it's truly incredible uh, and also <laughs> fairly indescribable. Uh, if you haven't already gotten it, I would definitely recommend reading this, like the instant you're able to get your hands on it. Um, and let me just add right after that, that I really tried hard to balance my eagerness for the book with my desire to savor it. Uh, it was definitely a struggle, but luckily I can read it again and again and again. So <laughs> that's lucky. Um, okay. So that was a brief summary of a pretty much in unsummarizable work of magic. Um, the only thing left to say before jumping into more of the writing now is that I've organized the rest of my review into three sections. Um, and those sections are fascinating ocean facts breath-giving statements, and transformative questions. I'll continue to explain as I go, um, but let's jump into the first section, which is fascinating ocean facts. Okay, so it feels only fitting to start this section off by talking about Hydrodamalis gigas. Hydrodamalis gigas. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly, and I apologize in case I'm not. Um, Gums informs us that Hydrodamalis gigas was a giant subungulate, meaning related to elephants and aardvarks, um, sea mammal who weighed up to three tons and swam in the Bering Sea. These animals grew to be, quote, at least three times bigger than the contemporary manatee, end quote. And from the time that they were, scare quotes, discovered, end scare quotes, by German colonizers in 1741, to the time that they went extinct, only 27 years passed. The species was completely extinguished in just 27 years by European voyages for fur and sealskin. <clears throat> and I just have to read Gums's final paragraph slash ode to Hydrodemolis gigas, quote... I will say, once upon a time, there was a huge and quiet swimmer, a plant-based, rough-skinned listener, a fat and graceful mammal, and then I will be quiet so I can hear you breathing, and then I will be breathing, and you'll remind me, do not rush, and the time in me will hush, and then we will be listening for real." End quote. It's just <clears throat> so deeply touching. Um, this is one of my favorite passages in the book, I think. I find it simultaneously heartbreaking and deeply hopeful. Um, I think it really just gets to the heart of that conundrum we face as humans, particularly if you're a human living in the U.S. or any colonizer state. So much harm has been done in the name of my species and my colonizer state, and I must and do live in the wake of that harm. And how do I keep going? Where do I turn? What is the space I have to move? What agency do I have? How do I honor the legacy of trauma I live on top of? Once more. I will say, once upon a time, there was a huge and quiet swimmer, a plant-based, rough-skinned listener, a fat and graceful mammal. And then I will be quiet so I can hear you breathing. And then I will be breathing and you'll remind me, do not rush and the time in me will hush, and then we will be listening for real. And now we move to a pair of Waddell seals, um, one a parent and one a baby. 
Gums tells us that as babies, Waddell seals, quote, do not know they can breathe underwater. Uh, I did a little background research here, and what I was able to turn up is that when seals and related mammals dive, they slow their heart rate and push their blood to their vital organs to reduce the need to breathe while they're underwater. Uh, when they swim for the first time, the parent Waddell seal has to push the baby seal into the water and force their head under to show them that they won't actually drown like they think they will. Um, after describing what feels like a scary scene of a parent demonstrating to baby that they won't drown underwater against baby's will, uh, Gums writes, Am I the only one here in a lesson? A coughing, sputtering thrash? A struggle to stay who I thought I was, ignorant to whatever evolution has already written inside me? I feel out of my depth, but really, how would I know? Uh, end quote. How truly relatable. How many times I have felt so far out of my depth in the midst of a tough lesson. And generally I come out on the other side having learned something about myself and the world around me and what I'm capable of, but how scary and hard the coughing and sputtering feels. I'm really working to find the line between struggle and drowning so that in the midst of struggle I can quiet the shattering panic in my brain and focus instead on breathing and feeling the other feelings that are present for what they are and what they have to teach me. And from the perspective of the parent seal, there's so much here about the difficult process of parenting or teaching, facing the scary and at times cruel seeming task of stewarding young life through the intensive hoops of growth and learning. Some lessons cannot be learned without pain and struggle. And what a tough thing it is to have to make peace with watching someone you love beyond comprehension hurt and struggle, sometimes, like in the case of the Waddell Seals, of your own doing, at least in some sense. Quote, Love to all my parents and the push of the universe for laughing at me. Thank you to those of you who have pushed through portals already, even out of this life. We can move between worlds. Thank you for those of you living and evolving. The vulnerability of your newness is an example to us all. Thank you to those of you who hold me accountable, who expect me to, who expect me to be who I need to become. Thank you for ignoring the lies I tell about myself. Even in my resistance, I am grateful for you all, for the love you are teaching me, deep, black, and full, for the nurturance, push, and example what you learned by facing your own death, what you learned in your drowning is my breath." End quote. And there are a million more fascinating ocean facts within the book, but if I'm ever going to get to the next two sections of the review, I have to move on. So I'm going to close this section out with this fact that I'm just going to let ring on its own without really any commentary. Quote, Researchers say if whales returned to their pre-commercial whaling numbers, their gigantic breathing would store as much carbon as 110,000 hectares of forest or a forest the size of Rocky Mountain National Park. Okay, so now we're entering the section I'm calling breath-giving statements, uh, and I'm going to start this section off with the topic of school. Gums gives us an amazing play on the word school as in education system and school as in of aquatic animals. She writes, the primary unit of life for striped dolphins is school. 
The nurturing of the children happens in schools of between 25 and 75 dolphins, and school also continues. Schools of adults, schools of juveniles, school is necessary. And a little further on, she writes, what if school, as we used it on a daily basis, signaled not the name of a process or institution through which we could be indoctrinated, not a structure through which social capital was grasped and policed, but something more organic? like a scale of care. What if school was the scale at which we could care for each other and move together? In my view, at this moment in history, that is what we really need to learn most urgently." End quote. What a poignant line of thinking. School, when used to refer to aquatic animals, doesn't just refer to how they're educated. It refers to their units of community. And community encompasses education and so much more, or perhaps education in a much more holistic sense, like education of care, education of rest, education of support, rather than strictly education of rules and regurgitation of facts. As we are faced with the massive issues of inequity within our educational system, I find it incredibly thoughtful and inspiring to turn toward the idea of school as a unit of community rather than strictly existing to enforce a narrow idea of education upon the students outside of any other context of care. <clears throat> Moving away from a focus on school, but in keeping with the necessary message for the current moment, Gums offers this breath-giving paragraph. At just the right moment, the scholar Tavia Nyong'o reminded me that to conspire means to breathe together. Like narwhals do by the hundreds every summer, it's happening now. May we activate and renew the oldest conspiracy, remember all the thick impossible breathing before us and after us and with us, too real to be for sale, too beautiful to be forgotten, too magical for theft." End quote. I love that. To conspire means to breathe together. What a great way to frame resistance. In this moment, this time, that's both unique to right now and actually been going on for hundreds of years in some iteration, when resistance is perhaps the only way forward, let us view breathing together as the baseline. If we can't do that, we've got to shake the world until we can. And right now, we can't breathe together because some of us aren't allowed to breathe. And so, we must conspire in order to breathe together. I'm going to close this section with my favorite line that I've read in recent memory. I love the parts of you that no one thinks are particularly special. First, what a profound thing to say about the mundane. I love the parts of you that no one thinks are particularly special. I get chills every time I read it. It's so sweet and tender and small and beautiful. I love the parts of you that no one thinks are particularly special. And it's just one of the endless examples of Gums offering love to the reader, to marine mammals, to the world. I love the parts of you that no one thinks are particularly special. What a model to follow. 
an inspirational leap of love to take. I love the parts of you that no one thinks are particularly special. Thank you. All right, and now it's time for the last section of the review. I offer you transformative questions. Gums opens the whole work by asking, what is the scale of breathing? And I mean, yeah, wow, indeed. What is the scale of breathing? How do you measure that scale? Or is this a more fishy kind of scale? Uh, it's a really excellent opening because it's a question that begs more questions and she <laughs> definitely delivers. Um, I think this is a question to hold central to anything anyone does. What is the scale of breathing? Another great question she asks is, how can we discern the differences between generative boundaries and destructive borders? And I think this applies across a micro to macro spectrum. Uh, for example, the micro of expressing boundaries in our personal relationships. And then toward the macro end, I think it applies to like, you know, national borders. Um, and this is one of those questions that's a lifelong question to pose. And the answer's kind of always in process, never like complete. Um, one of those, the journey is the destination kind of questions. And uh, I think built into the question, how can we discern the differences between generative boundaries and destructive borders? There's a potential push to go beyond discernment to action, because if you answer how to discern that difference, what do you then do with that discernment? If you deem something a destructive border, you can't really just leave it at that, right? Because if you do, aren't you just sanctioning that destruction? How do we act with this discernment? Finally, I want to bring us to this question. How do we know the depth at which life is abundant enough to feed us and our families and communities at once? In this capitalism-obsessed, white supremacist-founded society, obviously speaking from my very specific positionality as a citizen of the settler colonial structure that is the United States, we so rarely get to think about abundance. We're so set up to work from a scarcity mindset. But I love this question that asks the reader to think about the conditions of possibility for abundance for us and our families and our communities simultaneously. And she frames it as a matter of knowing the depth at which this is possible. Capitalism is constantly encouraging us to do more, make more, earn more, spend more, deeper in debt, deeper in profit, deeper, deeper, deeper. But maybe if we instead widened our attention beyond just ourselves and beyond just our families to include whole communities, we could find a depth at which we can collectively live in abundance because we're not just focused on going deeper just for the sake of going deeper. I don't have an answer to the question. I don't know the depth at which life is abundant enough to feed us and our families and communities at once. But it's a question I'd like to orient toward. Uh, I think that's where I'm going to leave it because I have to stop somewhere. Um, 
there's no other recommendation for this episode other than to read this book. Um, once again, it's called Undrowned Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals by the incredible Alexis Pauline Gums. Um, honestly, it's a true treat to read and engage deeply with this work. Um, I love, love, love <laughs> this book. Um, if you're going to buy the book, I would encourage you to do so from the publisher, AK Press. Um, I'll link the page to buy the book from them in the episode. Uh, description. Also, the hard copy is $15 and the ebook is $7.50. Uh, besides that, thanks for listening. Um, if you want to make a sustaining monthly donation to the podcast on Patreon, I'd be super grateful. Truly, no amount is insignificant. Um, you can find it at patreon.com slash responding to, and I'll put the link in the podcast description and on the blog. Uh, if you can't make a donation, but you'd still like to support me, leaving me a rating or a review wherever you're listening would be super helpful. Um, and also talking uh, to your friends or on your social media about the podcast is also really helpful. Uh, thanks again for listening to episode 22 of Responding To. Um, hope you'll tune in for the next episode and have a great rest of your day. <laughs>